Well, for all of you who were, who were here last week, you know it was a very powerful time. We're thankful uh, once again to Chris, who's back here uh, again, uh, and uh, Darren, who just had an incredible uh, dialogue together. Chris uh, was just very, very open uh, about the uh, about his story and how that creates uh, this burning question in so many of us and in the world uh, at large and throughout history of if we have a God who is good, why do bad things happen? Uh, why does suffering exist? Uh, and so uh, we worked on that question a little bit. Uh, that was a really uh, moving time in uh, looking at that, and uh, Darren helped to give us some tools to, to think about that a little more. What we have tonight uh, is kind of like a, um, a part two on that, but is also uh, just as important, and that is... Uh, so part of the suffering that exists in the world or the bad things that, that take place in the world is the result of the injustice that we know that exists. And we can't look around us uh, really on any, uh, any part of even just our city or our campus or the people around us and not be aware if we're really looking honestly and we're really looking openly of the way that people have to deal with the existence of injustice in their lives, injustice uh, on personal levels, injustice in, uh, in communities, injustice uh, in uh, systems and legal systems and political systems. There's injustice that exists everywhere, and it affects people deeply. Uh, and it's a part of why does this exist? Why is this there? Why do people suffer from this? Well, we look around us and we see this, and we see so much of it often if we're really looking. Uh, it's as people of faith, it's easy to ask the question, well, what do I do about that? <clears throat> and that should be our question. Uh, if, we are, if we have the hearts of Christ, if we have the compassion uh, of God that exists in this world, we say, why does this exist and what can I do about it? Now, it's easy to be overwhelmed by that question uh, since this exists in such deep levels all around us. But uh, we have here tonight uh, Jay Haley. Come on up, Jay. Uh, and Jay is here tonight because he is someone uh, that I've seen in my life probably work on and struggle with and proactively deal with this question as a person of faith uh, in ways uh, that uh, I think have been very uh, uh, instructive to me that I've learned about. Uh, I've learned all about from him, uh, the ways that I've seen his heart work uh, when it comes to uh, the uh, existence of injustice and what we can do about it as people of faith. And so I think he has a lot uh, that he can share with us uh, when it comes to this question. And so, Jay, I would like to uh, pray for you right now, and we'll give it to you. Father, we are thankful for Jay. We're thankful for uh, the presence that he has had among many of us and the pillar that he has been of the University Avenue Church uh, for so many years now. And his work uh, in that community has helped so many of us to think about this question in really, um, really important and productive ways. And we're thankful for that. And Father, I, uh, he is here tonight in the midst of a very busy season of his life to share with us um, 
in that way. And so speak through him. Uh, use uh, his words to reveal your heart uh, in so many ways for each of us tonight. Um, Father, we're glad to be here uh, and help move us uh, when it comes to this question so that it's not just a question for us, but it is a call to action. And we give this to you right now in the name of Christ. Thank Amen. You, Thank you, Jay. Thank you. you bet. Really glad to be with you here tonight. Um, it's been a, first of all, let me say, I, I'm so thankful for Chris. I was here last night and had the opportunity to hear his story and, um, and for Darren's um, help in, in asking questions and, and explaining some of the things and helping us to cope with uh, suffering and people uh, going through the, the type of suffering that Chris did when he was a young child. So I'm in awe of him for doing that and I really appreciate what he, he did. So that's a hard story to follow and I, I won't be able to do it with the same skill that, that Chris did, but I had some things on my heart I wanted to try and share with you. But first let me have a couple of disclaimers first of all. Um, I want you all to know how important you have been in my life on this subject because I really would say that the, my kind of awakening to this being something important and something that I wanted to be more deeply involved in really originated with, with you and your predecessors here three or four years ago, uh, specifically in mobile loaves and fishes. Uh, through a set of circumstances, I ended up being the driver, you know, and, and I've driven that truck with many of you before and um, many of other students before you came. And so I'm the kind of the person in charge of getting other drivers, you know, have to be more than 25 over to drive the truck while you do all the hard work. And just, I'm inspired by what you do. I'm inspired by you taking off your time to do that. And all of you who work to prepare the meals and get the food, it shows such dedication. When I was your age, it just wasn't on my mind to be that dedicated to, um, to helping people who are homeless and helping people who, who need help. So, um, I thank you for that example, and you continue to be an example to me, you know, because I often think, if you can do it, I can do it. And so I hope we'll continue to encourage one another in that respect. The second thing I want to say is there's nothing really special about me or about what I'm going to describe tonight. Um, there are many, many, many people uh, who do far more than I uh, have ever done or will ever be able to do in dealing with injustice in, in our community or, or anywhere. Uh, I have so many heroes, uh, some I know personally, some I just uh, know by reputation or have read about or heard about or listened to that are true uh, giants, you know, and in, in, uh, inspire me so greatly. Um, and the particular topic, the particular aspect of injustice that I'll talk about is not one that's more important than the others. It's just the one that I happen to have the opportunity to be involved with and that touched my heart and some I chose, really, I, it got to the point where I could not do it. It just became something compelling. But for you, it will be something else. And so there are many, many different ways in which, uh, there are so many forms of injustice in this world that you've got a big, long list to work from. So um, don't think that I'm trying to suggest that this is the thing that you should spend your time on or, or, or have as your primary concern. Gee, I hope I'm going to be able to see what I put in this PowerPoint. It's way, way back there. Um, and if we get that. But a friend of mine, a friend of mine, who I won't name, asked me, um, what does the Lord require of you? And so I repeated that, well, uh, I told him what I learned from Scripture, 
And so you'll see this familiar verse. Uh, it's one that all of you've read before, and it's in Micah 6. And uh, the answer to the question of what the Lord requires of me is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. It's one of those verses that we memorize. In fact, the church here belongs to an organization of uh, university area churches called Micah 6. And they band together and work cooperatively together to have a food pantry and they provide help for homeless people. And we have a very good working relationship for many, many years with them. And we call it Micah 6 uh, after this verse because the, the words of this scripture really inspire us to, to, to do that. Um, and so then my friend asked a question I didn't have a good answer to. He was kind of a skeptic. He said, so why does your God allow so much injustice in the world, particularly racial injustice? There are 2.2 billion Christians. So where is all this justice, mercy, and humility you talk about? Kind of reminds me of that exchange that Chris and Darren talked about last week with Job and his friends that kind of challenged a person's faith in God. Uh, well, my friend was kind of the same way because he was... He looked around and he didn't see Christians doing all that much to fight injustice. So what I told him, uh, that was not fair, particularly on the racial issue, because we've made great progress. Some would say we're in a post-racial time. Sure, there's some places that still have a problem with this, but aren't we lucky to live in a place like Austin, this progressive, diverse, welcoming, open community where we just don't think that way. Uh, no one would ever accuse us of being racist. And to prove my point, I offered to introduce him to some of my friends of color because I was proud to have some good friends so I could um, bring forth as examples of people who had overcome all of that and now were very, very much a part of our society and were welcome any place and had shown great success in their professional careers. So I introduced him to my friends. I had four good friends. Uh, first one there on the left is uh, my good friend. I talk to him every day now, pretty much. Uh, Ashton Cumberbatch. What a great name, Ashton Cumberbatch. Well, Ashton uh, grew up in New York, uh, in Queens. Um, went to Brown University, Ivy League educated, really bright guy, great athlete, played football and basketball. Uh, came down to University of Texas um, to go to law school. So he's a lawyer. We know each other professionally as lawyers and more importantly worked together in a civic group together. We belong to an organization called Austin Area Research Organization and Ashton was president of it one year and I was the chair of what's called the Social Equity Committee. And so we became really good friends. Now the next person there um, to, next to Ashton is also named Cumberbatch. Well, that's his daughter, Virginia. And I've become good friends with Virginia. Now, Virginia is a, is a really incredibly bright, beautiful young woman in her 20s. Um, she's a graduate of a, a LBJ school, public affairs. Um, she now is the head of the director of the UT Center for Community Relations. So she goes about all over and um, talks about and tries to connect with people in the community. Uh, and I've invited Virginia to come over here 
and meet you sometime. You would love to meet her and, and hear from her. And we've been on some panels together. Ashton and Virginia and I have spoken to some groups together before. It's a wonderful person. The next person is my good friend Alba, Alba Serino. Alba is really a bright person, has several degrees in social work. Uh, she's passionate politically, very, very actively involved. Uh, she worked for a city council member, and now she works for the city's Office of Innovation. A real kind of, she's very bright, kind of a think tank sort of person, but passionate believer in social justice. And um, she's Mexican, I think she's half Italian and half Mexican, so you can imagine what combination that creates. She's a very emotional and very fiery sort of person, but I love her, and she's a great person, recently married, um, and it speaks very honestly and very forthrightly. And the next person is uh, Kaziki Prince, and we call him KP, Kaziki Prince. Isn't that a great name? Well, Kaziki is another really bright person, uh, went to uh, uh, Texas um, uh, Prairie View A&M, and then he got his uh, master's degree and then a PhD at University of Georgia in education, psychology, I'm not sure what. He now has his own consulting business, and he's a special assistant to Mayor Adler. So he's got a very responsible position. So I'm proud of my friends and their accomplishments. They're very well known. They've all won awards in the community for various civic things they do. Uh, Ashton's a lawyer, and um, he, um, you know, is just, but his heart really is in civic engagement and, and social justice in, in particular. Now, I should have introduced myself a little bit more deeply. I'm a lawyer too, okay? So don't hold it against me. Any law students or lawyer or lawyers wannabes? Uh, sort of, not yet. We'll talk, all right? We'll talk. Um, uh, Liliana, I met Liliana the first day she got here, you know, like five years ago, whenever that was, and tried to talk her out of being a lawyer. Cause I, and, I, and I always do that because I want to be sure people want to be lawyers for the right reasons, not maybe some, some of the wrong reasons people want to be lawyers. So anyway, so these are my trusted friends. We, we've known each other pretty well. So I, uh, I told them what I had told my friend. I'm sorry. I told them what I told my friend. Just man, let me go back a minute. Uh, that really things are better, and we don't have the kind of problems we used to have. Uh, and they would be evidence of that fact because they were very much a part of the establishment and very well accepted in Austin. They didn't say much, really, and so I thought, well, they must agree. But look what they were thinking, you know. Jay, you're embarrassing yourself. And then Virginia says, oh, boomer. And then uh, uh, Alba says, clueless. And KP says, what an idiot. So th they knew that what I was saying was just nonsense, you know, because even though they had succeeded um, in their lives, they knew that, that we were far from overcoming racial inequity. And so that began a, literally a three-year-long conversation that I've had with them um, in various contexts. And it was, at times, very, very uncomfortable for us to be talking that openly. And I, I can talk pretty openly about, and some of you may get, you know, it's like talking about sex or something. You say race, and you're like, oh, you can't talk about that, you know? Well, it's uncomfortable to talk about. And that's, that's a problem we have because we can't have honest conversations about it. But, and it's hard. 
But there are various things that, that I was able to do with their help to be in environments where we could have a safe conversation about that and we could both be, be honest about it. But you've got to get outside your comfort zone to do that. And that's, that's hard to do. That's hard to do. Um, one of the things that we did, um, I, I, through my friends, I, I was appointed to a couple of, a mayor appointed a committee to look at some of these issues, and then there were, there were two or three different uh, kind of task forces that were appointed to do it. I was involved in some of those to try to study it and learn more about it. But one thing that we did, um, there was a consultant who was brought in for a two-day long um, seminar, conference, workshop. Um, with with uh, multi-race, uh, you know, people, uh, black, uh, Latinx, you know, whatever you were, you know, white, just all, every every uh, race you could imagine, every every uh, nationality you can imagine were there, and we would gather in groups. Um, there were several of these, but maybe a hundred or more people would would come to these particular sessions. They would last two days. And it was to kind of make you understand maybe some things about yourself and about other people you, you just took for granted. Or uh, all of us have a bias, and it's, it, it can be an unconscious bias. We may never think of ourselves as being racist or, or having any ill will toward anybody, but there are some assumptions that we make. There are some uh, uh, unkind uh, assumptions we, we sometimes make about people that... Uh, are wrong, and but we're clueless. We really don't know. Just like I was clueless in, in making some of the statements that I made, uh, we all do that, whoever we are. But um, during this three-year process I went through, there were several defining moments for me. It just kind of an aha, where you finally understand, you know, what the problem is, uh, and and it's um, it kind of opens up a whole different point of view. And one of them was, uh, was this conference, this seminar that I went to. Because um, at the end of the first day, we'd been there all day long, they gave us a little, we did a lot of, you know, little workbook stuff, and, and they gave us this uh, thing to fill out, this little checklist of, we were all asked to uh, score from one to five uh, when we had experienced some kind of discrimination or been, been made to feel uncomfortable or had had some negative experience because of our race, okay? Uh, or sometime where we've been felt left out or sometime when we'd been, uh, somebody said something unkind to us. And from, 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 from serious situations to very mundane little slights, you know, that, that, that you had encountered. So we, we, we didn't know what the purpose of all this, so we filled it out. And they said, okay, add up your score. And, uh, you know, you, so if you checked all ones, it'd be one thing. You know, you'd have a low score, and you checked all fives, you'd be very high. I said, okay, write the number down on a piece of paper. And then I want, if it was a room about this size, I want you all to stand around the edge of the room in order of your number from high to low. So everybody just kind of organized themselves by looking at their number. And it took a few minutes. And they said, I, I don't want, this is the man leading, leading the deal. He said, don't say anything. We're not going to talk. And we just we'll line up where you are and um, then just look around. And we, everyone did. And... Um, I was on kind of, as you would imagine, on, on the end, the low end, I can't remember which way the score went, but the side where 
I hadn't suffered much of anything other than kindness in my life, you know, from people. Um, but you look around the room, and it was just like, uh, like you went to a paint store and had paint samples from, from light to dark, okay? Perfectly arrayed, okay? From the, from the whitest person you can imagine to the darkest person you can imagine. From shades of black to shades of brown to Asian to white, okay? And I looked over at the white end and recognized a, a woman, you know, who's a wonderful, wonderful, kind-hearted woman who headed up this organization I belonged to, Austin Area Research Organization. And she looked embarrassed to be at the end of a line. And I looked at the other end of the line, and it was the president of Houston Tillotson University, the president. Colette Pierce Burnett, wonderful person. And I thought, how could that be? How could that, how could she have, this bright woman, PhD, she was an engineer, she does, incre she does incredible things over at Houston Tillotson with very little resources and has become a really true um, civic, per, uh, you know, civic leader here. And I'm on committees with her, know her very, very well, and, and uh, it just made me so sad. It made me angry that that existed, you know, in Austin, Texas, for Pete's sake. How could that be? So that was kind of the first time I began like, hmm, that's not right. That is just not right. The color of your skin is irrelevant. What possible difference can that make to a person's worth? But we had sorted ourselves out, you know, where obviously their life experience was such that it did make a difference. So, stupid me, I kind of, in our meetings, I, I continued on with this idea that, but Austin's different, you know. We're this. I'm proud of Austin. I love Austin. I've lived here for you know, fifty some odd, almost sixty years, and uh, practiced law. I was a real estate lawyer, so I represented clients that you know did real estate deals. So I helped build a lot of the big, tall buildings downtown, and a lot of the other things that went on. I was really proud of the way our city had had built, and we had this cool image. You've all seen this sign out on South First Street. Um, and we win all these awards of being the best this and the best that where everybody wants to come and live and, and all that kind of stuff. So that was kind of my perspective of things. But then Alba points out that, well, that may be true for you, but then Alba being the statistician, you know, who knows all the numbers, pointed out you can see all the things that were not. And there was a series of newspaper articles that came out and said that, uh, we were one of the most economically segregated cities in the country, meaning there's a, a huge difference between West Austin and East Austin about economic value. Of course, there's, there's a side story to that with all the gentrification that's going on, but that's a whole other story. But the fact of the matter is, something we didn't know about ourselves was, statistically, we're not all this, you know, we don't have things solved as far as economic segregation and racial segregation. We've got a long way to go in that regard. And it shows, Ashton would point out, that life is different 
on the east side of town. And that, that green there is what's east of I-35. Those of you who are from Austin know what I-35 means. It's been like a barrier ever since it was built. Even before it was built, it was East Avenue before it became the freeway. But that's always been the other side of town. And the demarcation was, was very, very clear. And when you go through all the statistics about education performance, health statistics, um, mortality rates, food deserts, lack of services, there's no hospital, there's no banks, there's no, you know, all the things we take for granted, no grocery stores over and not, there are a few just on the east side of I-35, primarily because of the gentrification that's going on, but, it, but and, and East Austin now is going further and further out, the minority areas of East Austin are going further and further out. One statistic was shocking for me on mortality rates. I live in zip code 78731. Some of you have been to our house. We live on the far edge of West Austin. Great neighborhood. We've lived there for however long, Ann? I don't know. Long time. <laughs> uh, that's my wife, Ann, back there, if you don't know Ann. My life expectancy is 21 years more than a person who lives in Montopolis. Okay? Statistically, I'll live 20, I, I don't know if I really will, but the, the, the average life expectancy in my neighborhood is 21 years more. That's a generation longer than, than, than there. So the health disparity there is, is just unbelievable. And Virginia will point out the ugly truth is that it was all done intentionally. It wasn't just a matter of, well, gee, they just wanted to live over there, or that was just kind of an accident of geography. At one point in time, blacks and, and Mexican-Americans lived all over town. There were these little pockets of freedmen colonies where they lived, you know, when, when they were freed as slaves, they lived in these little neighborhoods, and they were all over town. Well, the, the city fathers decided that was very inefficient and expensive. We need them all in one place, because this is in Jim Crow days back in 1928, where, you know, slavery, we didn't have slavery anymore, but there was kind of a substitute system called Jim Crow where um, all these rules were set up that kept people segregated. So they had this idea that if you want to have, you don't have to move over there, but if you want water or you want sewage or you want your trash picked up or you want to have a park, you got to go over there because that's where we're going to put, we're going to put all the services there. So. It was kind of a forced uh, migration over there because they had no choice. If they wanted to get to live in uh, a decent environment, they all moved over east of I-35. So that's how East Austin became East Austin. It was put in the zoning ordinances. And not only that, as late as 1954, it was renewed. They reaffirmed that, okay? And that was after Brown versus Board of Education where they did away with segregation in the schools, supposedly. But, but they were still, had those rules. So that's the second thing, in addition to that, that uh, uh, color uh, uh, display of the different shades of color, this was the other thing that made me angry, you know, that that had happened. It, that just shouldn't happen. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Now, um, and it's had um, all kinds of, consequences, and Kaziki would point all those out. Um, because red, you know what redlining is? Redlining was a, a deal where the banks would decide that certain parts of town 
were risky to make loans to, so they wouldn't make loans. And they actually came out with maps of cities. And this is all over the all over the country, and they would have neighborhoods drawn out in red, like don't loan money there because it's a high risk. Well, guess what was redlined? East Austin was redlined. So they weren't able to get the loans to buy the houses, to improve the houses, to, to build the businesses. So uh, it, it, over decades and decades then, it was just an unlevel playing field where the same resources that we would have easily available were not available to them. Uh, example after example of that in, in every category that you would want to, from housing, education, health, income, homelessness, criminal justice, it's a whole different subject there. Um, so there were consequences, long-term consequences for that. So I would say, my first reaction was, everybody ought to be equal. Everybody ought to be equal. Isn't that what the Constitution says? We're all created equal and we should all have an equal right. Well, Virginia would say, that, come on, Boomer, you know, that's not going to solve the problem. And she would give me, she gave me that little illustration as an example. You see what equality is. Everybody has the same size box, but not everybody's the same size. Okay, so the little kid on the right there, the box didn't do him any good. And the one on the left didn't even need it. So, uh, and on the right, that's kind of the way it actually is. Now in the middle, and I had a hard time kind of coming up with the concept of equity. That sounds like you're giving somebody more than they, more than their fair share. You know, shouldn't everybody have equal rights? But I slowly began to understand after example, after example, after example of where really equity was called for because of all the cumulative decades of discrimination and not having a level playing field and me finally understanding that, you know, I was, I was born on third base and thought I hit a triple, you know. It was a matter of not understanding what my privilege and advantage was in comparison to someone who didn't have the same advantages that I did. So, um, and, and there's a, there are a lot of people now who are trying to come up with t the right tools, not to give somebody an unfair advantage, but just to try to level the playing field. And so that's what uh, we've been trying to, to uh, understand and do. And, um, the four of us then began to um, talk about, you know, what could we do to make a difference? And, and over a period of three years or so, we began to say, we ought to do something. Let's try to do something to make a difference. Uh, we can't solve all the problems, but let's just take one neighborhood, just take one neighborhood and see if we could try to apply some of these principles and make a difference. And so we formed a nonprofit. Uh, two years ago, we formed uh, something called Equidad ATX. Now, I'm terribly pronouncing it. Would a Spanish speaker please tell me what Equidad means? Or do you not understand my, my, the way I say it? Equidad. Equity. It means equity. Supposed to mean equity. Tell me if I'm wrong. But that's what we named our company. And uh, it's a nonprofit that would um, address those issues in a, in a particular way. We would deal with mixed income housing, cradle to college education. Uh, to career education, economic opportunity, and health and community wellness. And um, uh, Ashton and, and Kaziki and Alba are, are kind of the founders that we now have a nine-member board of directors and we've 
raised a little bit of money. We've gotten a couple of grants. We got a grant from, from the city recently. Well, we got two grants from the city actually recently to start working on some of these things. So that's what we're gonna do. And that's what I spend about half of my time now working on. Now, um, I, again, my disclaimer is that's what I needed to do because I was convicted of that through going through this process. I didn't, I wasn't here in 1928. I didn't create that problem but I felt responsible for it. I felt convicted that that was wrong. And um, I, all my 50 years of law practice, I was doing the sorts of things that could be used to help undo those things. So it, it was a fortunate time in my life where why not use what you know in a way that could help undo a problem. I didn't create, but I didn't undo it. I mean, I didn't do anything to, to, to prevent it from, from continuing. So that's what I've chosen to do. Other things are just as important and should, you know, if you've got something that you're passionate about, do something about it. So that brings us back then, and, and we'll wrap up here with uh, kind of going back where we started. So a friend of mine, as I said, asked, what does the Lord require of you? I told him to read scripture. And I reread the scripture to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. But then I could tell him about some things I learned, too, that go along with that scripture that were part of my experience with my friends, my other friends. Um, first of all, I love the fact that uh, the way that little uh, is, is it emphasizes the verbs, act, walk, love. And that kind of gave that scripture a little different meaning to me than I had uh, when focused on the, the justice, mercy, and um, humility. But so I, I really now want to focus on the verbs in that scripture. To act justly requires us to pay attention. I just was ignorant. I did not know the level of the injustice. It was there for anyone who would take time to notice it, to see it, but I required an education to really understand the suffering that was going on. So ignorance is not an excuse. You know, if, if it doesn't seem like a problem, it's probably because you don't know enough about it to know that it, that it exists. And it requires action. You gotta do something about it. It's not just a matter of being mentally um, aware of it and mentally um, disapproving of it. You know, you actually have to do, you can't do something about everything, but you can do something about something. <laughs> you know, pick something that you would, uh, would do. Uh, to love mercy requires fairness and equity. If you want to be merciful, you have to uh, have an awareness of your own place of privilege. We all, all of us in this room, if you're going to college, you're privileged. And there are others, you know, who just don't have that opportunity uh, for money reasons or for reasons that they didn't get the education that you got that would allow them to go to college now. So be aware of the privilege that you have. And it should cause you to be more merciful to other people when you understand the, thing, the advantages that you have that others don't have. Um, and speaking to the things that Chris introduced and Darren introduced about suffering, God hates suffering. He hates injustice. It's an evil thing that he does not 
want to exist. But be clear, particularly in, in the instance of injustice, it's something we do to each other as humans. God doesn't do that to us. We, are, we, we treat people unjustly for selfish reasons, for greed, for hatred, for you, you name it. But it's a human act that creates the injustice. It's not God that creates the injustice. So if there's injustice in the world, it's our doing. It's our doing. It's not God's doing. Um, walking humbly requires us to have compassion, empathy, and awareness of our own weaknesses. And um, we, um, and again, um, some people go through suffering and they arrive at mercy because they've suffered and they know kind of what it feels like. There's another way. I mean, you don't, you know, it's suffering, you have to suffer in order to do, overcome injustice. No, but you've really got to work at your empathy. You know, there are other routes to that. But if you don't develop a sense of empathy and compassion for other people, then uh, you'll never be able to, to live up to this verse. You'll never be able to do that. Um, and suffering may be the only way that you get there. And, and God ultimately wants us to be his agents on this earth that's what he really wants of us he wants us to be christ-like that's his goal for us is to be like christ and if it requires us to suffer to do that to become that then that's one way to to become christ-like is to suffer as christ suffered but there's another way to do that too by simply learning you know how to to be compassionate how to be have empathy and care and mercy for other people. And then finally, um, we, um, when we walk the road to justice and mercy with God, that's just simply saying we become more Christ-like. And until Christ comes again to remedy all of this stuff that we are trying to deal with now, and eventually he will, and it will be solved, it's our job to make it better while we can in whatever ways that we can. I'll leave you now with uh, with one final thing. You know, last night, uh, Virginia's a, a wonderful person. I'm going to invite her sometime, maybe if Carrie will allow me to come over here and, and let her tell you, you her own story. But I went to, uh, we went out last night to dinner, and we stopped off at the grocery store. And I'd already kind of worked on that and decided to kind of incorporate Virginia into my story here on this and because uh, and, um, she has a lot of wonderful things to say. And I look down there, you know, these, they have these free magazines that you pick up. Well, here's Virginia. That's Virginia Cumberbatch. And it's a story about her passion for fighting for equity. So there's an article about I've got two of these here if you want them. I'll leave them up here. But, um, but here's what, I'll leave these words uh, from Virginia. Uh, in, the, in the little magazine article, it says that um, uh, she uh, believes fighting for equity is a calling from God. Now, both of her parents are wonderful. They're, they're, one, they're all wonderful Christian, her whole family. They're four children, and the husband and wife, Ashton and his, mother, and his wife, uh, Jennifer, are, are pastors at a church in addition to other things. Um, and what she was quoted as saying there, I, uh, I can't read all this. I lean on walk, seeking wisdom from God in the moments when I could easily be pushed in the direction of something that just feels good. Uh, my faith 
is the centerpiece. My job might change, my resources might change, but that's pivoting around my purpose and calling. So very much uh, a part of what she believes. Um, thank you for letting me be here. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and we'll talk some more. We've only touched the surface. A whole nother topic would be criminal justice. And I wish we had time to talk about that and so many other kind forms of injustice. But let me recommend something for you. If you, some of you may have seen the movie, Just Mercy, it was out just recently, came out at Christmas. Great, great movie, you get a chance to see it. But it's a real life story of a lawyer who devoted his life to um, uh, uh, releasing, uh, trying to get people who were innocent uh, out of death row in Alabama. And it's a wonderful story and um, he's a great hero. It's a guy named Brian Stevenson. And I'll recommend the book for you. Um, Thank you. Uh, time for a question or two. Anybody got anything you want to ask? You can come up to me afterwards and later. I'll be glad to talk with you. Um, let's get ready for communion now. And uh, if you'll bow with me for a moment for prayer, we'll, we'll get ready to take communion. Gracious, merciful Father, you, uh, you have shown us such mercy and you show us such love. Um, and we know that you are... Uh, a merciful and loving God and you hate injustice and you hate the evil that's in this world and you so want us to be your active agents for change give us the um, the vision and the courage and the commitment to tackle whatever it is that we have the opportunity to do and give us your power and your courage and your wisdom to do that and uh, we pray for all those people who suffer unnecessarily and for all of those who've been um, think of themselves as less than others and please forgive us for that sin we pray in jesus name amen <laughs>